Awesome. I hope everyone had a good lunch. Um, there's a water main break on the other side of the building here today, so there's a small chance you'll have to take your dishes home with you and wash them there and then return them. So we're really sorry about that, not our fault. Um, uh, just wanted to give you folks a quick note, a quick reminder. Um, if you would like to uh, check out any of the upcoming sessions for SACPA or listen to audio recordings or any podcasts of previous sessions, they're all available on the website. Um, next session next week is Can Floods and Forest Fires Be More Accurately Predicted Using 3D Technology? with Dr. Chris Hopkinson and Dr. Laura Chasmer. So if you're interested, please come out next week and check that out. Um, we'll start the Q&A right now. If anyone has any written questions they would like me to read out, please bring them up here. Otherwise, the microphone for you folks, if you'd like to ask a question, is just on this side here. Um, we are discussing if can neuroscience help First Nations communities heal, help solve some of the problems of colonialism. And I will just remind you folks very quickly to keep your comments, uh, questions brief, just out of respect for other people who would like a chance to talk as well. So uh, without further ado, Dr. Brian Cole, if you mind coming back over here. Ooh, looks like you have a question already. Thank you. Hello, I'm Mary Shellington. Uh, at our table, there was uh, some enthusiasm for your project that uh, Hopefully we'll start before too long working in the two reserves uh, 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 here in Alberta. The question wa uh, was raised, uh, how will there be some kind of continuity? We know that things are funded often, uh, even, with, uh, even when the results are shown to be effective, but uh, then a new issue comes up and uh, something else happens. Uh, I, I had a background from Manitoba with the child and family of Western Manitoba, where in, in probably the 70s, the private agency had implemented uh, play people, train people to go into homes uh, of, of families who were connected with the child and family agency. And it was still functioning in 91. And so it was a long term, and it, there were positive effects from that. So that's the positive side of it. But given the political situations now and governments in short term, sometimes, uh, uh, what, what is your fears about you know, the continuity of it? Well, it's a really good question. As a scientist who depends on grant money, I know the continuity is a big deal. Oh, yeah. Um, as a scientist who depends on grant money, I know that continuity is a big deal. Um, this program will be for five years. Basically, within three years, we were hoping to be able to produce enough encouraging evidence to convince the government, if it's, if it's the current government, they've already admit, uh, uh, said they would expand the program and put it in the, in the, in the federal budget. Um, they didn't tell me that. They told Mr. Martin that, so I believe him. Um, but if it's a different government, who only knows what might happen? So let's just cross our fingers, A, that we can demonstrate its effectiveness. It works really well in rats. So <laughs> um, and hope that the funding will become uh, from the federal government. Now, one, we were having a discussion at our table. It was the federal government who caused the problem. Um, but of course, there'll be a lot of hand pointing here as to which government it was. Well, it was all of them. Um, so. 
Yeah, it's a good question. Klaus. Klaus Jereko, uh, Dr. Kolb, I want to thank you profusely for this excellent um, discussion of the complexity of public health. Um, I, 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 was, I am a parent still, and I was a parent, and I was never taught how to be a good parent. And most of us, there's no institutional training where you, you can go and learn how to be a good parent. So I, I do wonder how many home visitors we actually need in the public. Well, you mean the number of home visitors for a small population or for the whole country? Well, <laughs> that's what I mean. I, you know, I, the, 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 the effect of bad parenting, I'm sure, is, a, is, is actually a big issue in public health. Oh, for sure. Uh, there's a group called Parents as Teachers, uh, which you may or may not have heard of, and Parents as Teachers basically are um, acting like home visitors. They're not, they don't have the same training as ours will have, and are getting right now, but that's a start. So you can have uh, parents, going, parents who have been given some sort of training program and aren't being paid to start acting as home visitors. But you're right, we're looking at a population of uh, 34,000 people, of which we're only looking at a, um, a small number for the program, and we have three home visitors, but they're gonna be full-time um, home visitors. Uh, down the road, obviously, we need more, but you know, even if you're paying minimum wage, it adds up in a hurry, and we're not paying minimum wage, but if you were, say you're paying $20 an hour, um, it starts to add up, and that money has to come from somewhere. Yeah. Um, Michael Byers, um, I have two questions. The, the first is that we know with disadvantaged communities that there can be a, 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 a cumulative effect. So if there's trauma and disadvantage in one generation, the next generation is more vulnerable to more yep. damage. Yep. Um, are the, the brain effects cumulative as well from generation to generation? So is, does do the, the changes that are passed on from one generation to the next then make that following generation more susceptible to, to further um, negative uh, changes in their brains? That's um, unfortunately, one. Michael, the answer is yes. There is that problem. However, it also means that we can do the opposite. Right, we can actually intervene and, and make it better. But yes, there, there is a cumulative effect. Um, okay, and, and the second question, um, sorry, th this came up at, at our table. Um, presumably, societies that uh, enter into periods of, uh, of, uh, of fear or hostility, um, at, an entire society can s suffer from changes to brains. Um, and just wondering whether you've given any thought to how this might um, relate to national leaders, for instance, creating hysteria or fear in an entire generation like we might be seeing in the United States. Is there a, is there a, a nationwide or, or global sense that, uh, that, that these brain changes might also uh, not just be uh, the result of a direct personal trauma, but of the actual societal discussion and, and ethos um, that can be perpetrated by someone like President Trump? 
You know, only a person from UBC would ask a question like that. <laughs> that, that is not an easy question to answer. I'm reluctant to say much. I hope you're wrong. Um, that isn't the case. Uh, but one can imagine, you know, um, you're not old enough, but uh, I am to remember the Vietnam War and the effect that that had. And there's an example of something that clearly affected the whole country. And uh, those, those effects are still there. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 Dr. Kolb, thank you for a wonderful presentation. I'm sorry this question um, overlooks something you've already stated. I was helping out in the back. Reconciliation, what is it? What can we do to help and how many generations will it take? Uh, that word confuses us whenever we debate what does it mean? Can you tell us from your perspective? or from your expert? Well, I would, yeah, it's a really good question. I would say the first step in reconciliation is recognition. I was uh, telling somebody that, you know, I, I grew up in Calgary. Um, I was, I've lived in Alberta most of my life, 65 years of my life I've lived in Alberta, and I'd never heard of residential schools until about 10 years ago. So why is that? Uh, it's not that I'm going to argue, and you can disagree, that I'm not well-educated, but I wasn't well-educated in that. And so um, I think we have to start with the recognition of what's occurred and not to poo-poo it. I think there's a, an element of us to say, okay, just get over it. So uh, I know one person who said, well, my family was booted out of Scotland. We had to go to Ireland because uh, the Brits didn't want us there. Um, we got over it. And my response is, yeah, but that was several hundred years ago. How long did it take to get over it? Uh, it wasn't yesterday. And so I think we have to recognize that it's there and then we have to, I think we're in a position where we can say, okay, what do we do? How can we, recognizing this is true and it's not trivial, and now with our, our neuroscience experiments on, on lab animals, we know that these early experiences, the effects of the early experiences are not trivial. They're, they're long lasting and they're structural. How can we reverse it? So I think that's what reconciliation, through my eyes anyway, uh, looks like, yeah. Hi, Ken Sears. Um, I've got a question related more to the implementation of the program. How are you going to deal with the, I think, absolutely understandable suspicion that you will encounter in the Aboriginal communities uh, with home visitors? Because I hear the word home visitor, I look back on reading histories of even, say, people in the projects in New York at the turn of the last century, and the home visitor, the welfare lady, the social worker was a, was a person of fear because they were coming into the community, they were coming into the home and quite often taking the children. How are you going to deal with that? The home visitors are from the community. They're actually from the community. And so they are actually in the community now. They grew up in the community. They're known in the community. And so they're the ones. So hopefully we understand the issue. Uh, hopefully, and they're the same tribe, they're, so we wouldn't take Blackfoot and move them to, to a Cree reserve because there could be suspicion there. We know why it's called Indian Battle Park. And so um, I think that's the first step is to have people who are in the community being the home visitors. Okay, the, you know, just as a second question, I'm assuming that the families, the homes that are participating in this will be almost self-selected? In that they will agree to. Be They'll be self-selected, although the, there's a fantastic um, 
medical center there. The women will all be at that medical center. And the um, reception we've got so far is that most, if not all, the women want to sign up. So I don't think it's going to be a biased sample, which I think is what you're implying. Uh, we don't believe that's going to be the case. There may be some who don't want to be in it or want to drop out. That's their right. But we're expecting um, that they won't. Okay. It's based on what we've been told uh, by the elders there. My name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thanks for coming, Brian. We're lucky to have you since you were in Edmonton yesterday and you could have gotten stuck up there, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it was even colder up there. I wanted out. So. <laughs> uh, my question relates to the uh, first time I heard you talk about this fascinating research was uh, to a group of uh, women in gender studies uh, students at the university when you... Uh, basically told the women there that they should check out the uh, future husbands or uh, fathers of their children before they actually engage in any uh, activity that might produce children. I, I have said that. It's tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> Hello. My name is James Moore. That's Nahido, the language of where you were up north. I uh, said, good work, and thank you for coming here. <clears throat> thank you. I think uh, when you say you only heard about the residential schools 10 years ago, for our entire country, it was totally unknown in the mainstream population. In the indigenous population, it was of course known, but it was hidden. It was something that only came to light. And now, with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I think it's important that we understand. There were some comments at my table, and there are comments in general where people challenge uh, the issue and they say things like, well, other people had problems, other children suffered, why is this focus? I think we need to ask the question the other way around. Because even if you think about the Holocaust and the Nazi extermination camps, even there, the children were with their mothers here in Canada, the children were alone, not allowed to play, not allowed to hug, separated from family. And our project, our official policy as a country, was to destroy the culture. And it was cheaper for us to do it through the brainwashing and through the assimilation project because it was cheaper than the American policy, which was extermination. So assimilation was cheaper, but the end result was the same no more Indians. They were in the road. If you want to speak to reconciliation, that's why I say because you're doing something positive. You're taking the, the knowledge that you've gained through your work and you're actually being able to apply it in a healthy manner. So in the longer range, <clears throat> when you talk about the good going forward, we could think that, you know, the permission to hug even, 
it's being granted through your scientific expert expertise, through your studies, because from our <coughs> way of seeing the world, <coughs> we require that kind of <coughs> repeatability scientific method. So you can say, yes, it's true. But we also know, <coughs> and I know, <coughs> from personal stories, a uh, friend who went through horrible experiences told me when he was five years old, was camping on an island with his family, with his brother, a plane landed, people got out, two RCMPs and an agent. They spoke to his mother who started crying. His mother came, they gave her 15 minutes and she said, they're going to take you away and if we try to stop you, you'll, we'll go to jail and they'll take you anyway. This repeated times 150,000. That's our history. So, thank you. Thank you. I, I'll give you one little anecdote. Uh, how did we get involved in this? And it came from Paul Martin. So there's a, a Canadian program called the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research, which was started by Fraser Mustard uh, about 30 years ago. And there are various programs in it. And the program that I'm in is called Child Brain Development. And so Paul Martin went to Alan Bernstein, the president of CIFAR, and said, you've had this program on child brain development for 16 years. Have these guys ever done anything useful, or do they just meet and chat? And so um, uh, Alan Bernstein says, well, talk to them. I don't know. I don't go to their meetings. Uh, so he did. He came to talk to us. And it was really interesting. And I'm going to quote pretty much verbatim what he said. He said, if you told me this stuff, the kind of stuff I just told you five years ago, I would have said that's bullshit. Um, but he said, now I'm on board. And he said, so you, you guys have to come on board with us and start this program. And so I said, you know, given my age, this is a great exit strategy. <laughs> I can actually do something applied at the end of my career. Uh, I mean, I've done applied stuff before related to stroke recovery and so on. But that's how we got into it. It was through Paul Martin. Yes. Just to go back to the previous gentleman's question or comment about um, choosing the father of your baby, um, <laughs> you have done work though, or there has been work done on on the um, the effect of alcohol on semen, right? That it's yes. much more important than it's not just the woman's egg. Or in fact, it may be bigger. And yeah. so, really, we don't hear about that very much. Of course not. Men are in control. So <laughs> I say that. You know, it's partly true, but the sperm is turned over in 40 days, so in fact, if you, you can reverse that effect, right? Um, you can't, if you look at the effects, uh, for example, of cannabis, uh, which I talked about at Rotary this morning, the effects of cannabis are very different, and it's a little harder to turn some of those effects around. But again, as far as the germline goes, once the sperm has been re reformed and, and so on and not exposed to, to the drugs, um, the effect can be blocked. So just on the cannabis issue, yeah. then can you, can you tell us your opinion about what's, what's happening? And so I just read about the correlation between young, young boys and schizophrenia and cannabis. Yeah, so um, the brain, as I mentioned, is, is uh, plastic. And the most plastic time in brain development happens to be during adolescence. And those of you who've had a 12-year-old girl know what I'm talking about. Uh, they're not my favorite group. Um, and my daughter was pregnant. I, I wanted her to have a girl just like her. Uh, 
her response was, I wasn't that bad. And I said, I want you to see it through my eyes. Uh, so during this adolescent period, the brain is really plastic. It's really changing. And that's the worst time to be taking a drug like cannabis that is such uh, a provocateur of brain plasticity. So um, what the story I gave this morning at Rotary is that 18 is too young for the uh, age of consent for cannabis. It should be at least 21. I understand the complexity of that because they're trying to tie it to the drinking age. Uh, but people point to the US and say, well, they haven't had these problems in the US. It's 21 in the US. Um, brain development begins at conception or before and continues till at least age 30. And so um, the major changes, however, are, are during adolescence and so that's a problem. I don't think it's been well thought out, um, but I'm not in control of that. Yep. Douglas Mitchell, uh, thank you for your presentation. I just want to challenge you on the use of the word colonization when in fact it's been oppression largely. And when we look at post-colonization in the countries that were colonized and have now gained their freedom, and I've been to many of them, India, Indonesia, Cameroon, Sierra Leone, all post-colonial countries. And they have done so much better. And we have a lot to answer for here. And I finally, my final question would be, how do we combat this overwhelming sense of racism that we find pervades our society? That's a tough one. Uh, they, if I start with the issue of what the word means, colonialization, I'm only using it in the way that it's being used nationally in Canada. Um, when we had a site visit for our project, um, there was a woman on the site visit panel who really was unhappy with us underplaying the effect. She thought we weren't emphasizing it enough. Um, so there is some dispute over the word. In terms of how do we reduce the amount of racism, this is really hard to do. Uh, look in the United States. Um, you would think that by now, yesterday was 50 years since Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. We're not all that much further along the road. And so this is a very difficult uh, thing to reverse. And I gave you the example of my chihuahua. She was never going to like other dogs. And so, um, you know, we have almost exactly the same DNA uh, in white people and black people and Asian people and so on, that the differences are trivial, and yet for some reason we focus on the obvious. Yeah, I don't have a solution to that. I wish I did. Um, Jan Langford, I just wanted to understand the neuroscience a little better. Okay. Um, with epigenetics, then if there's a gene that's turned on off, mm -hmm. that transfers through generations. It What's can. So what's happening in the next generation then if you're introducing the kind of programs you're talking about? Is that gene actually turning back on our, again? Our goal or? is to reverse the gene changes. Okay, so if, if we know that nasty things produce changes in gene expression, then good things should be able to reverse them. We know that we can reverse them chemically. The problem is the last thing we want to do is to start introducing drugs to uh, uh, as magic bullets, because they wouldn't be, they'd be magic artillery shells um, to try and reverse the changes. So we know in our lab animals we can reverse these changes behaviorally with, with interventions. Now it's not talking interventions, obviously. Uh, so our, our goal is to, is to reverse these gene changes uh, in another way. 
And is this, the science able to tell whether it's those same genes that are turning on you and know, off, or are we not there yet? In principle, we could be. Uh, we're not there yet. But in, in fact, it won't matter, um, because if we can just change the brain, I don't care which genes get turned on, as long as the changes are, are changes that are beneficial to brain function. Right. Yeah. There are many ways to organize a brain, and some are good and some are bad. Mary Shelley again. again. <laughs> Here I am again, yes. Since no one else came up. Um, you talked about uh, how truth and reconciliation uh, can do all kinds of things. I think part of uh, your story of saying you didn't know about the residential school until 10 years ago, that is a common theme. And, and so uh, at our McKillop Church, the Justice, Peace, and Social Action has focused on learning the truth as the Aboriginal people uh, have spoken the truth. And, and uh, when we had James Daschuk here uh, recently, he, he told the truth uh, from research, from, uh, from the 1800s. And many, uh, several of the Aboriginal leaders stood up and said, we've been saying that truth all along and nobody believed us. Thank you, James, for doing that because as a white person, you can say that and people believe you. So that's part of it. We don't believe that, uh, those things. And, and the research fellow funder said he wouldn't have okayed your program you know, five years ago for that right. reason. So I think uh, what we need to do is work on the truth uh, first and be open to hearing that, each of us individually. Um, uh, my, another comment I had, you mentioned it was the women that were going to be working, uh, we're open to having um, a trainer come into their homes. How are we working with, the, how are you planning to work with the men? That's a really good question. And um, we want the men involved. I mean, clearly the men play a major role in this. Um, we're starting with the women, but the home visitors will be prepared, because the, the, it could be that the uh, caregiver is, is a father, not a mother, right? Uh, they're prepared, they will be prepared to interact with both, and with obviously grandmothers and, and so on, yeah. Yeah, I, I just tell you a little anecdote, and that is, uh, I grew up in Calgary, when Calgary was a small place somebody might want to live in, as opposed to now, and I think there was about 200,000 people. Uh, the high school I went to was Henry Wisewood, which at the time was on the edge of town, now it's not, and the only interactions we had with indigenous kids, a school bus came, they got off the school bus, they went in, into the school, the school had 2,000 kids, so they just vanished in the school, and then the school bus left. I never ever talked to one, never had any interaction with one, because they were never in, in a class that I was in. So you'd never be exposed to it at all. It's just, they, they lived on, on Mars and showed up every day in a school bus, so, yeah. So we just, we just have time for one more quick comment or question, and then we'll be wrapping up here. Hi, my name's Natalie Townsend and I'm a teacher. And I just wanted to more make a comment to address the, the question of racism and how do we start to change that. And I know that as a teacher, since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has produced its report, our curriculum has changed to incorporate that into our curriculum. And I'm shocked at how many teenagers I speak to whose parents are in the same position as us. I had no idea that of the damage that residential schools have done. And I just have great hope in the education system 
and encourage people to get involved in, in that end of things in the education system to teach our young people what happened in the past to help us to avoid making those same mistakes. I, um, just from having gone through this in our classroom um, and, and confronting some of the attitudes that, that are you know, endemic. They're just, my parents just pass this attitude on to me and I have it. And I believe all these things about First Nations people and well, guess what? They're not necessarily true. And so I, again, just encourage everybody to get involved in the education system, get involved in educating our young people so that they can recognize some of this truth and make the changes that need to happen to make the racism, to reduce racism and, and allow our First Nations people to live the same quality of life that the rest of us enjoy. If I can go back to Michael Byer's question about society, you know, we have a, a person south of the border who is telling us all that you know, um, Mexicans are rapists and drug dealers and it's the same kind of thing, right? And of course it's not true. All right, uh, Dr. Kolb, do you have any final thoughts or a question for our audience to take home and ponder? No, I want to thank them for coming and look forward to our public announcement so we can tell you more about what we're actually doing without being shot by the granting agency for stealing their thunder. But it's, it will happen soon. So. All right. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.